0: Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning for those of us who are in Christ, that he's our Savior and our Lord, we are your children. We come before you as the body of the church to worship you, to to praise you, to learn more about you, to be reminded about the love that you have for us. So, God, I pray this morning for for wisdom as we go through your word this morning. I pray for the Holy Spirit to convict any hearts that need conviction, to give joy to anybody who needs joy, to be strengthened and encouraged by those who need it. So, Father, we just praise you. We thank you for your love. We thank you, Jesus, for coming and dying on the cross for our sins. And We praise you and we thank you, Holy Spirit, for giving us wisdom and discernment as we read your word. You make it active and alive. We just pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'd like to thank the Camaloni family, and especially Nick Camaloni. He, he was pre-preached um, for us last week, and it gave me the opportunity to go away with Stephanie and Naya to visit my sister and her husband and my, and my nephew in Pennsylvania. And she lives way out far in Pennsylvania. I was looking at the map of it, and she's like right at the southernmost, westernmost border of it, so not like, oh, a nice four-hour trip to Pennsylvania. It's eight or nine hours. It's, it's, it's long. Um, but for the most part, Naya did well. It took about seven or eight hours for us to get there. And the majority of the, of, of the road trip, if you've ever driven in Pennsylvania, you're on the turnpike for a long time. And let me just tell you this. The first hundred miles or so on the turnpike is literally this. Put cruise control on, keep your steering wheel straight, and don't fall asleep. It's really boring. It's flat. There's nothing to look at. And then once you get a little further, you go through some tunnels, and you, you go in the mountains, and it's kind of fun. You're going around things, right? But I don't know if this has ever happened to you. There's this strange phenomenon that takes place sometimes when we drive, and it's, it's hard to, to explain it, but I'll do my best, right? Have you ever driven for a few hours or a few minutes, maybe on your commute to work, it's a drive you've done over and over again, or maybe you're driving for hours at a time, and have you ever got lost in your thoughts? Right, maybe you're physically there and you're driving, but mentally you're, you're like checked out and you're somewhere else. You're driving and you're focusing on the road, and then all of a sudden you kind of snap back to reality. You're like, oh, I'm driving. Wait, what happened? What? I'm, still, I'm still driving? What, what, what went on? Right, you get lost in your thoughts. You're driving, you're focusing, you zone out, you come back to reality. It's a really strange experience. I think if we're honest, we've all sort of experienced that before in our life. And it has a name. It's called highway hypnosis. I looked it up cuz I was like this is weird. And and from what I understand it's an altered mental state in which a person can drive for far distances responding to all the external events around them in an expected, safe and correct manner with no recollection that you've consciously have done so and that you were driving. In a way, like your subconscious or something, like just muscle memory takes over. You're driving, and then all of a sudden, you're like, "Wait, I'm still driving. What, what's going on?" Right? You drift away into your thoughts. What's even more strange is there's data that in this mental state during highway hypnosis, if we, if we want to call it that, there's actually n- it does not increase your chances of car accidents. And I was like, "Okay, I don't. That sounds a little sketchy. I didn't fact check it. Or I didn't. I don't really know, but I googled it, but." You know, people have said there's really not a lot of data to collect and it hasn't really increased car accidents. As long as you're not tired, as long as you're not drowsy, you're safe when you do this. And I was reading a blog post and there was a guy that was like, oh, when I go on 10-hour road trips, I've trained my mind to just to think about that and the road trips were like an instant for me. And I'm like, that, there's no way that's safe. There, like, there, there's no way that that's... And don't do that. I'm not recommending that we do that. Right? It's scary because you might be on exit 60 on the highway and in the moment or flash, you're on exit 30, and you're like, I don't remember ever changing lanes. I don't remember if there was a red light or a green light or if there's traffic or if I went around somebody. I don't, I don't remember it. And, and, and here's what I'm getting at. Why am I saying this? As we read God's Word, I want to be careful that we don't zone out, that we don't experience, and I'll call it a, a Bible hypnosis, as a play on words of the highway hypnosis. What I mean by that is we need to be careful that we don't zone out, because a passage might seemingly be boring or seemingly it's like, oh, well, I already know this, so I'm going to skip and go over it. I, you know, I have memorized these verses. I'll just skip it. Right? Too often I find that myself when I'm reading a story, I usually try to skip to the good parts or, or, or read it so quickly so that I could get to something interesting, right? Because I'm like, oh, I already know this story. What else is there to learn? And I was reminded this week while reading a book for an online class that I'm going through It's just, it reminded me of 2 Timothy 3.16, and as soon as I read it, most of us will know this verse. It says this, that all Scripture, and I'm going to add here, right, all Scripture, now this is David's, all genealogies, all Old Testament law, all the law about the building of the tabernacle, all the sacrifices and the laws that go with that, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. It's profitable, It's good for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. So as a bit of encouragement, as we read the Bible, both in church, outside of church, in small groups, let's remember that it's God's Word. It's not just words on a piece of paper, but it's actually God's Word. If it's in the Bible, it's there for a reason. God wanted it in there. So this morning, we're going to be continuing through our series of John's Gospel. So hopefully you're still there, but if not, you can turn to John chapter 3, and we'll start at verse 22. But before we read and continue on, I want to give a little bit of a recap of where we've been. Right? We took a week off last week, so I'll give a little recap. We learned from John that Jesus is the eternal God, that Jesus has no beginning, He has no end. He's the Creator, and John calls Him the Word. We learn that Jesus, God, came from heaven to earth. He came to us. He pursued us. He, he tabernacled. He dwelt among his creation for 33 years. And then all of a sudden, this man named John the Baptist enters the scene. A really strange man, and we looked at his life a few weeks ago. But he testifies. He proclaims that Jesus is the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. And that's important because for 400 years... Israel has not heard anything or from any prophet, any word or revelation from God. Then all of a sudden you have John the Baptist, this crazy guy who eats bugs, who's hairy. right? He has a following. He's baptizing people. He sees Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God. This is the Messiah that we've been waiting for. Because of that, John, who is the author of the Gospel of John, Andrew, Simon, Peter, Philip, Nathaniel, they all follow Jesus. They spend some time with Jesus. Jesus reveals some truths of scripture to them, and they follow him and, and they claim and they follow him as their Messiah. After that, we saw Jesus' first public miracle. Yell it out. What is it? Perfect, water into wine. I decided to make sure we were we were still awake this morning. We also looked at after that miracle that Jesus goes into the temple. He goes into the worship place where the people are called to worship God and he, he rids it of all the corruption. He literally makes a whip out of cords, a homemade whip, and he chases people, animals. He turns over tables. The money is going everywhere and people are, 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 are running out of the temple. He, he's kicking them out of God's house because they've corrupted the worship that's supposed to be taking place there. After that, Jesus has a personal, a private conversation with Nicodemus. He's a Pharisee. He's a religious leader. He's a great teacher. I would say he's a celebrity in Israel. People know who he is. And through his conversation, Jesus reveals that in order for us to get into the kingdom of God, to have eternal life, we have to be born again. And that phrase troubles Nicodemus. He's like, well, how can I be born again? I'm such I'm an old man. How, how, how can this happen and what Jesus is pointing at, the fact is that it's the work of God, that only the Holy Spirit, God, can transform, take our dead hearts and breathe in us new life, give us a new heart. So throughout John's gospel, he'll continuously reveal the simple truth that Jesus is God and that he came down from heaven to earth for the mission of saving and rescuing sinners. And as we look into today's scripture verses and why I talked a little bit about highway hypnosis and and, and, and and how we shouldn't overlook passages, I was really tempted to just skip over these passages. I was like, ah, we already talked about John the Baptist a few weeks ago. I don't know if there's really a whole lot of meat here. And, you know, let's just get to the next story with Jesus and the woman at the well. Like, that's such a, that's a good, that's a great story. Right? And I felt a little convicted as I was studying and I was like, wait a minute, I, I I should not be skipping and bouncing around and picking and choosing what's my favorite, but rather read God's Word. This passage that we're reading is in here for a reason. God wanted it in His Word. So we're going to revisit John the Baptist, and this is the last time he's mentioned in John's Gospel. And we're going to look at three main points throughout these verses. We're going to see, number one, we're going to see Jesus' ministry versus John's ministry. The second thing we'll see is we'll see John the Baptist's response to this, so, to this seemingly clashing of ministries. And then the third thing we'll see is John the Baptist's testimony of Jesus, who Jesus is in his words. And as we discuss these verses, I'll remind us right periodically as we go through, I'll give us a little bit of recap of who John the Baptist is, and we'll continue to see his humility and his selflessness, and we'll also see that it does point to Jesus and his humility and selflessness. But we'll see John's humility on display for his disciples to see. So let's jump in. We'll start at verse 22. John chapter 3, verse 22. After this, this being his conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus and his disciples went to the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John was also baptizing at Enon near Salem, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming to be baptized. For John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. They came to John and said to him, "Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him." And before we get into this clashing of the ministries, I don't know if you picked up on this, but in these few verses that we read, it says that Jesus went with his disciples into the countryside, and they remained there together, but they were baptizing people. I don't know if you, if you, if you have ever known that or, or remembered that Jesus was actually baptizing people. The same as John the Baptist, it was a baptism of repentance to prepare their hearts, right? But he was baptizing It's believed that in this moment or in this time that he was with his disciples baptizing, this takes place for for a couple months. It's not like a day trip or a day thing. This, This spans for a few months. Jesus is with his disciples together for a few months. We also see what John the Baptist is doing in this time. John the Baptist was, you could guess, he's baptizing. That's his name, John the Baptizer. And people were still coming to him. His ministry was still, you know, I would say being successful in any sort of worldly manner we want to say that. People are coming to him. John's ministry of calling people to repentance and and baptizing people, it didn't end with him revealing and pointing that Jesus was the Lamb of God. John is still faithfully serving and faithfully doing his ministry that God has given him to do. He's continuing to make straight the path of the way of the Lord. As we remember, John the Baptist's mission was in a sense to roll out the red carpet. To roll out the red carpet not for himself to walk on, but for Jesus, the Messiah, to walk on. He reveals Jesus, the Messiah. And in these next two verses that we read, we're going to see a a clash between Jesus' ministry, Jesus' baptisms, and John the Baptist's ministry. Some of John's disciples, they came to him, and and this is what they said, and this is my translation. They said, "Uh, hey, John, teacher, master, rabbi, remember that guy over there, Jesus, that, that you pointed to? Look, look, he's right there. He's also baptizing people. But not only that, he's stealing our people from you. He's stealing our people. Everybody's going to him instead. What are we going to do about it? And let me be very clear here. John's disciples, his followers are the ones that see Jesus' ministry as competition. It's not John. His disciples are very loyal to John, and they didn't want to see their master take second place. They cared about John's ministry, and they were upset that more people were going to Jesus than were going to their master, their rabbi, John. And I do have to say this. I, I'm going to give a little bit of credit to his followers. They had loyalty to their master. They had loyalty to John. They, they saw you know, their, their ministry was starting to fade away a bit. People were going to Jesus, and, and they were getting upset about it. Right? However, their master was the wrong person. They were very protective and deeply devoted to their ministry to John, but their hearts belonged to the wrong baptizer. And I don't know for sure, but maybe some of these disciples were still were followers of John when he pointed out Jesus as the Lamb of God. Maybe, the, the text doesn't say that, but maybe. Maybe some of these men here were close to Andrew and to John, who were initially John the Baptist's followers. And then after John points at Jesus, they go and they follow Jesus. The main point is John's disciples, they saw Jesus' ministry as competition. Right? As, 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 as There was a clash. There was like a battle going on. They brought it up to John, and they basically said, John, what are we going to do about it? Look, look, at, look at his ministry. Look at our ministry. What are we going to do? What's our next baptism or evangelism plan? What are we doing next? And I just want to say this. Oftentimes, and especially on Long Island, especially here, ministers see local churches as competition. And, and and I can say that firsthand, I've seen I've been told by other ministers and other pastors who've refused to partner with me in youth ministry, right? And they're like minded. I'm not talking about heretical churches that are different doctrine. I'm I'm talking about, you know, gospel believing, gospel preaching, Jesus loving, like minded churches. Right, and, and they don't want to partner because there's a, there's a fear of losing people. What they've done is they've they've made their church a little kingdom. They've built up walls really high, and they say, what goes on in this church is for our church only, and vice versa. We're not going to any other churches or any sort of ministry events or any sort of outreaches. We're not partnering. We're going to keep it all in-house. We're going to stay in our own little lane, our own kingdom. And I've seen that firsthand with trying to partner with local uh, youth ministers when I first got hired here. And I'll say this, it's kind of a flip of a coin. There's two sides to this. As a pastor, as a shepherd, we do have the responsibility to protect our flock, to protect the flock that God has given us from false teachers, from false churches, preaching false doctrines, from wolves. We are held accountable to love the sheep that God has given us, and we are, we are instructed to guide the flock, but we have to remember that we're all God's sheep. doesn't matter if we're part of New Village Church. It doesn't matter if we're a part of a church down the road. Right, As long as you believe that Jesus is Lord and Savior, you've repented and you put your faith in Him, the Bible calls us brothers and sisters of the Lord. If a shepherd would leave his sheep in the sheepfold all day, now the sheepfold was just a little, like a fenced-in cage. It had no grass. Most of the time it had no roofs over them. The sheep were, were, were in the sun, exposed to the elements. They were rolling in mud and muck and, and their feces all day. Right? If a shepherd kept his sheep in the sheepfold because he was afraid to lose his sheep, I, I would argue that would no longer be a good and loving shepherd. His sheep would never enjoy the grazing of green pastures. Right? They'd be sheltered, undisciplined, and I would argue abused by their master. And what I want to say, and I want to be careful with this, is it's okay to partner, it's okay to talk to other Christians in other churches. It doesn't make you a heretic. It doesn't make, mean you're out of the church. That's it. I, well, I saw you. You went to the, you, you're out of here. Sorry. But what I will say, if you're a member of New Village, right, you, you should be actively participating in our church services, right? You've, you've committed to our church. But if you want to go to another church's outreach, right, or, or, or to see what they're all about, and you know, if they're doing a picnic or something, and if I bump into you there and I see you there, I'm not going to yell at you. Because I'm there too. maybe I can't point the finger because I'm there too. But what I want to be careful, a lot of times as leaders of the church, even church members, if you're fully committed to a new village, that's great. Amen. Praise God. But be careful that this doesn't become your kingdom, my kingdom, my church. It's God's church. Let's be careful with that. And we see how John the Baptist sees his ministry, and how he doesn't see Jesus as clashing, but we'll get there in in a second. But as John's disciples see Jesus' ministry, his baptisms as a threat to their master, we see John's response in the next section. So number two, we see John's response to his disciples. Let me just say this, it's a lot different than how I would say the world would react today. So verse 27, John answered, he's talking to his disciples now, So John gave a threefold explanation or an answer, asked his disciples, saying, John, what are we going to do? Jesus is baptizing. He's stealing people from our ministry. He's stealing people from you. You're, You're getting the silver medal. Jesus is seemingly winning this competition. What are we doing? John's response. The first is he reminds them that his ministry has been given to him by God. He says in verse 27, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. John's making a clear point. He's reminding his disciples that everything that was given to him, his popularity, his fame, people knew John the Baptist. People went to him. He had a following. His followers, all his fame, was a gift from God. John never saw his ministry and he never had the mindset or the emotion of this. (laughs) Look how much I built up. Look how good good I am. Look how great my ministry is doing. He never had that thought. Rather, every time we see him in Scripture, he's pointing to Jesus. Rather, his mindset is, look what the Lord has given to me. Look what the Lord has blessed me with. Everything that we have, everything that's been given to us, has been given to us by God. No one can receive more than what God has given to them. This is what it means. This means every talent, every ability, every gift, Right? Everything that we have has been given to us from God for our good and pleasure, but ultimately for God's glory. Right? The gifts we have are for our pleasure our enjoyment, but for God's glory. Whatever we receive is to be used to further His name, to glorify Him. L- let me just say this. If you've been blessed with a phenomenal singing voice, use it to glorify God. If you've been blessed with this amazing knowledge of how to fix cars, use it to glorify God. If you've been uh, given a gift of, of, of being good with numbers or math, praise God, uh, that's not my gift. Pray, praise God for that. Use it to glorify him. Whatever gift and talents we have, use it for his glory. And here, here's the danger, though. Our, our human nature, our sin nature, often what happens is we look at others, and we get jealous. Right? We look and we say, I want that. What? How, how, come, how come God didn't give me that? I, I want that. And, and what happens is we get angry, envy, envious, bitterness. We get jealous. Sometimes we even try to tear others down so we can lift ourselves up. And, and sometimes we try to steal, right, and, and, and try to steal that gift from somebody. And when we, when we react that way, what we're saying is God... The gift you've given me, I don't want it. I I reject it. I want this instead. You must have made a mistake because I want this. I want to do this instead of this, what you've given to me. And what happens is you're saying, God, in your perfect wisdom, you were wrong. That's a contradiction, right? God, in your perfect wisdom, you must have made a mistake with me. I I think I know a little better. And we try to obtain things that God has not given us. That's, That's the danger. That's the temptation we might face. And I truly believe that New Village Church, that this church body and building is a gift from God for our community, for, for us to glorify God. There are over 9,000 people who live within a five-minute drive of this church in all directions of the building. Right? It's important to remember, this is God's church. It's not David's church. It's not the elders' church. It's not the deacons' church. It's not the people's church. It's God's church. We exist to glorify Him through making disciples and spreading the gospel. That's the ministry that God has given to us, each one of us here today. And in our giftings, which are different from each other, we use that to glorify Him, to make disciples, to preach the gospel. We shouldn't be looking at other churches or or other facilities and becoming envious and saying, "You know, why why do they get all that and then look at us here? How come they get all the success? They're, They're stealing all the people from us. That's the easy temptation that we might get into. But John reminds us that everything we have is a gift from God, and our gifts are used to what? Glorify Him, not glorify ourselves. John doesn't see Jesus' ministry as a clash. He actually sees and responds with joy, with joy. The second response that John says, right? So he says, my ministry is given to me by God. I did not do all the work. God gave it to me. It's used to, to proclaim and further his name. The second response to his disciples, verse 28, he says again, I am not the Christ. He reminds them who he is not. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Over and over throughout John's ministry, His message never changes. I am not the Christ. I am not the Messiah. And the people, as a recap, they said, well, then who are you? He says, I'm just, in a sense, he says, I'm nobody. I'm just the one who's in the wilderness calling out, make way, make straight the path, the way of the Lord. Right, so I'm not the Christ, but I'm the one who points to him. As a reminder, even before John the Baptist was born, his parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they knew their son's mission and his placement compared to the Messiah, right? Who he is compared to the Messiah. This is what we read. He will turn many of the children to Israel to the Lord their God and make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So John the Baptist's parents, nowhere does it say he will turn many children of Israel to John their Lord. Rather, John, his parents knew that John's mission was to what? Point others to the Messiah, to Jesus John clearly knew his mission and his position compared to the Messiah. And so did the people, because he would proclaim it over and over and over again. And to help further to his disciples why he's not the Christ, why they should be joyful and happy to see Jesus' ministry succeeding, this he uses a wedding example or like a little parable here. In verse 29 he says, The one who has the bride is the bridegroom or the groom. The friend of the groom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. I did a little bit of research into ancient Jewish culture and traditions for weddings. The best man or the best friend of the wedding, it was a job. If someone asked me back then to be their best man, I'd be like, "Ah, that's too much of a commitment for me. I don't know, that's scary. They acted as the liaison between the bride and the groom. They arranged the whole wedding. They invited the people to the wedding. They presided over the wedding feast. Their duty was at night to guard the bridal chamber and let no false lover in. And once he hears the voice of the groom getting closer in the darkness to the door of the bridal chamber, he would let him he would let him in to his bride, and the best man would walk away joyfully. His his job was now complete. The task of the of the best man or the bridegroom's friend was also to bring the bride to the groom safely. After that, he fades away; he fizzles to the background, and then it's all about the bride and the groom. Now, I don't know if after this list of qual- of, of jobs, would you, I don't know if you'd take this, you know, nowadays if that was your job. But that was John the Baptist's job; that was his mission. And think back to your own wedding, if you if, if you if you had one. Imagine if your best man became the spotlight of it during the ceremony. I don't think, that would be very upsetting. Why? Because the wedding's not about the best friend. The best friend, the best man, his job is to what? Stand joyfully next to his friend and rejoice in their love, rejoice in their wedding. And that's what John's telling his disciples. That Jesus' growing ministry, that Jesus' following is not a competition but rather it's joyful. John has joy as his crowds, as his followers are leaving him and going to Jesus. Now that goes against all human nature. If all my friends leave me for another friend, I wouldn't be like, hey, I'm so happy you guys just ditched me. Thank you so much. John knows who he is. He knows his mission. He knows who it's about. It's all about Jesus. A few years ago, there was a youth group student, and throughout the year, I was working with him. I was constantly discipling him. I was sharing the gospel with him. I was answering biblical questions that he had. I spent hours just hanging out with him. He sat under my preaching, under the lessons of youth group, week after week after week, hearing the gospel over and over. Right, Still never made a profession of faith. Fast forward, one night came, we had a, youth combine, a combined youth event here in the sanctuary. A guest preacher was preaching that day. Do You know what happened? At the end of the service, there was an altar call, and he came up and he gave his life for Christ. Right? Amen. Hallelujah. Here's the problem. And this is embarrassing, and, and, and don't judge me on this, right? There's, I was convicted. The only problem was my first response was not joy. It was jealousy, right? I said, how could this guest preacher come in and steal my disciple? How could he come in and reap all the bene- and reap everything that I was selling this past year? Right? How could he do this? I put so much time and energy into this student. It was supposed to be me who saved him. And now, how dare him? He did that. Right? And, and, and honestly, for those few moments, it was just a few moments, for those few moments, it was jealousy and then embarrassment and conviction. Why? Because that was my heart's initial response, was was jealousy. A soul was saved. Praise God. After that short moment, I was convicted, and then I had joy. I rejoiced because a lost sinner came to Christ in repentance, put their faith in him. And my immediate heart revealed something about me. It showed sin. And God reminded me very quickly that it's not David Moore who saves souls. It wasn't the guest preacher who saves souls. God saves us. God saves souls. God makes us born again. I'm glad that God allowed me to play a role and to see the transformation firsthand of a dead heart into an alive heart, right? Praise God for that. But there's that danger of temptation, right? Pride sometimes comes in the way. And then we get to the last thing that John says. So he sees his ministry is from God. He reveals to them and reminds them, I am not the Christ. I'm not, not, I'm not the one worthy of devotion and following. The last response he says in verse 30, he says, He must increase, but I must decrease. We see John's decreasing is necessary. Here, John the Baptist reveals he must decrease. Right, Jesus must increase. I must decrease. God's will for John's life was to give way for Jesus. I would argue this. John's mission was to always take second place to Jesus. And John knew that, and John rejoiced in that. He knew that he would eventually fizzle out, he would eventually decrease. Why? Because Jesus would increase. John graciously accepts God's plan for his ministry, and he humbly and joyfully gives up his followers, gives up his ministry to make way for Jesus. Where his disciples complained and got jealous. John loved taking second place compared to Jesus and his ministry. I don't know how many Olympic athletes, if they had the choice, do you want first, do you want gold, or do you want or do you want silver? Second place. I don't know many athletes that would say, I'll take silver, I'm good with silver. If given the choice, you want gold, you want number one. John willingly says, I know my place. I am not the Messiah second place I will decrease he will increase and he doesn't say it out of obligation or sorrow or joy he's not like oh, okay guys you know he, he we have to decrease so he can increase he's not crying about it he's saying it joyfully he's rejoicing in it right and it shows his heart he's accepting he's he's having joy about it we live in a culture today that idolizes self. Every commercial, every billboard, every advertisement preaches the same message. It preaches that you are the most important person in the world and that you need this to even be better, to be more important. Our culture is obsessed with ourselves. And here, looking at John's humility, we see something that is very counter to our culture. We see humility. Humility. And it just got me thinking, and and I'll, I'll just throw this out to just meditate and ponder. What would our church look like if we adopted John's words and lived our lives in a way that everything we did was to increase Jesus and for his namesake? What would our lives look like? What would our church look like? What would the community around us look like? I would say this. I think our church would begin to look like the proper bride of Christ. From this, it's a reminder, less of me, less of my will, less of my way, and more of Jesus, his way, his will. Jesus, right, John's humility, to me, it reminded me of Jesus' humility. And Jesus shows us what true humility looks like while hanging, dying on the cross for our sins. If you want to turn there, you can, but I'll start reading it. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Philippians 2. Paul says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Let me pause right there. What does humility look like when we look at Jesus? We see the God of the universe, the creator of all, the one outside of time, humbles himself to come to creation. Humbles himself to be now into time that he created. So, on the first kind of a twofold truth, Jesus' humility is that he's eternal God who came and humbly took on flesh, right? He took on, he lived in the creation that he created. That's humility. Not only that, verse 8 would say this we continue to see his humility. Being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Here's the second aspect of Jesus' humility. Jesus, I don't know if you thought it Jesus was not helpless on the cross. What I mean by that, the two thieves next to him were helpless. They had nails through their body. They were stuck to the cross, helpless. They could do nothing but stand there and die. Jesus, being God, at any moment, he could have taken himself off the cross. At any moment, A legion of angels could have come down and smitten, is that the the right word? Smitten everybody around them, smited them. I don't know, someone look it up later and tell me. I don't know if you thought of that, though. Jesus was not helplessly there, like I'm stuck, they nailed me, I I can't get off of it, nothing physically I can do. He could have. But what we see here, humbled himself by what? Becoming obedient, making this decision, making the sacrifice to stay there and to die. Paul continues, Therefore God has exalted Him highly and bestowed on Him the name above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And as I was just focusing on that this week, Jesus chose Right? Don't let this become a fairy tale or just or, or a nice story. Think about it. Jesus chose to die. Jesus chose to suffer on the cross in our place. That's amazing grace and amazing love. So we see John versus Jesus. We see John's response to his disciples that he must joyfully decrease for Jesus to increase. And then the last thing we see is John's testimony of Jesus. The attention now goes to Jesus. Who is Jesus? That's what John's going to say in his testimony here. And that's been the overall theme. As we've been going through John's gospel, we've been asking ourselves that question. Who is Jesus? How does John, the apostle, the author, right, how does he reveal who Jesus is? John the Baptist gives his disciples five reasons to accept and joyfully, humbly accept Jesus' testimony successful ministry. He reminds them of Jesus' origin, that Jesus had a heavenly origin. Verse 31. For Jesus, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. I believe he's talking about himself there, right? I'm belonging to the earth. I talk in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. Here we see as John reminds his disciples where Jesus came from. He descended from heaven. In John 1, verse 14, the word became flesh. He dwelt among us. He came down. John contrasts who he is, where he came from, with who Jesus is and where Jesus came from. John is sent from God, belonging to the earth, born on earth, a human. Jesus came from heaven. He was sent from heaven. And John would say because of Jesus' origin, right? he's above all on earth. The second truth or testimony we see is that Jesus knows the truth firsthand. Verse 32, he bears witness, Jesus bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Jesus' testimony, what he proclaims, what he says, his claims are true. Why? Because Jesus is God. As he speaks about heavenly things, he speaks about things that are true and things that he knows firsthand. It's not like someone's whispering in his ear and, and, and he's like, okay, okay, what is heaven like? Tell me about, okay, oh, what is that? Okay, oh, now I'll tell people. Jesus knew firsthand. Why? Because he's God. He's eternal. He was the creator of all. No one's revealed heavenly truths to Jesus. He knows. He knows him. He's God. And we see a warning, or not warning, but kind of a sad news here. Despite Jesus' powerful testimony, his authoritative proclamations of, of the truth, we see that the world rejects him. The world rejects his testimony. Right? That verse says, yet no one receives his testimony. And that echoes what we read earlier in John about Jesus being the light, and it says, yet the world did not know him in the general sense. Not not literally, like literally every single person. In the general sense, the world rejects Jesus. And how do we know that? Because he was murdered on the cross by the ones that he came to save. Over and over throughout his ministry, we see the rejection of his claims to be God, his claims to be the Messiah. The third thing that we see of John testifying is that Jesus' testimony always agrees with God. He doesn't contradict God. Verse 33, whoever receives Jesus' testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. In a general sense, the world rejected him, they rejected Jesus, but there were those who what? Received him, who joyfully received him. And John would say here, he set they set their seal that God is true. And this expression to set your seal, you could think of like a ring, a signet ring, or a stamp. Right, as you have a document in front of you, if you were to stamp that with your seal or put your seal of approval on it, what you're doing is it's a complete acceptance of what's on that paper is true, right, that, that that is what you're in full agreement with. Those who receive Jesus' testimony accept that God is true. And Jesus, throughout the gospel, just to simplify it, and you could ask me specific verses, but to simplify it, Jesus' testimony, that he, he reveals that he is the eternal God. Over and over again, Jesus reveals He is God and that He's come to be our Savior. He's come to rescue, to seek and to save the lost. The fourth testimony we see is that Jesus experienced the power of the Holy Spirit without limit. Verse 34. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. For he gives the Spirit without measure. As Jesus speaks, as Jesus talks, He proclaims, he speaks the very words of God. Why? Because again, he is God. And he has the Holy Spirit without measure. In Colossians 1, Paul writes this, For in Jesus all the fullness of God, all the fullness of God was was pleased to dwell, and through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus perfectly knew and he understood the truth of God because he's God. There were no limits to the Holy Holy Spirit's power working through Jesus Christ and his public ministry here on earth. Paul reminds us the fullness of God dwelt in Jesus. And the last point, number five, Jesus received all authority from the Father. Verse 35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in him has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. John reminds us that Jesus has the complete authority over everything. He rules and he reigns over all. And right here in this last verse, we're reminded of the gospel, the good news of the gospel. John says, for those who repent, for those who believe in Jesus' testimony and the claims that Jesus has made, there's eternal life. On the flip side, he also gives us a warning. For those who do not believe, who do not obey, it says the wrath of God remains on them. And, and let me just explain it this way to wrap it up here. Because God is just, which means he, he exercises justice perfectly, without mistake. Because God is perfectly just, sin has to be punished. Sin must be punished. The Bible says that the cost of sin, what, what's earned when we sin is death. But what we see is that Jesus Christ took on our sin, he took on our shame on the cross, dying in our place, taking on the full wrath of God in our place. And the question is, why would he do this? Simply, God is not only just, perfectly just, but God is love. God is love. He loved us so much, he provided the sacrifice. He provided the atonement for our sins. He made a way for us to be reconciled, to be made right in him, to be adopted as his sons and daughters. And John's Gospel stresses that not everyone is automatically saved and automatically gets heaven because of what Jesus did on the cross, but only those who've repented and believed and by the power of the Holy Spirit receive new life, are born again, and are forgiven. I was doing, and I'll, I'll end with this, I was doing a little bit of research about the the imagery of the lamb in, in the Bible. And I, and I stumbled across something, again, didn't, didn't fact check it for hours, Um, But I think the principle still is true and and biblical. Why is Jesus called the Lamb of God? Other animals were used in atonements and sacrifices. But I read something interesting. When lambs were led to the slaughter, they took it. They didn't fight back. They didn't run away. Lambs just, whether it's it's the I don't want to sound bad, but whether it's the stupidity in their brain or the lack of defenses, right? Or maybe they just don't know. But lambs willingly get sacrificed. They don't put up a fight. They don't run away. They don't bite the person that's going to be you know, sacrificing them. They willingly take it. And on the flip side of that, we see Jesus, while he's hanging on the cross, he willingly, he willingly decides to give up his life. He, he makes that decision. He, he loved us so much that he hung there. As I said before, he could have taken himself off the cross. He wasn't helplessly stuck there but he chose, he humbled himself to the point of death on the cross. And I will argue that is amazing grace. That is amazing love. Let's pray. I'll invite the worship team to make their way back to the platform. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the ability to read it, to be encouraged by it. We thank you that The Holy Spirit makes it active and alive. It's just not words on a paper or words that we read. Rather, it's living. It's how You've revealed Yourself to us. I pray, Lord, that as we continue our ministry here at New Village, as we seek revitalization, as we seek to evangelize the community around us, as we seek to disciple each other, I pray that we never become selfish, that we never make claims like this, this is my ministry and my church, I pray that we remember it belongs to you. I pray, Lord, that in everything in our lives, any gifts or talents or abilities you've given us, I pray that we can use them to glorify you, to further and increase your kingdom here on earth. I pray you protect us from being envious of others, of other people, of their churches, of their ministries. I pray for joy as we serve. Joy as we worship together as your body. I pray, Lord, as we head out of these doors this morning and and go back to work or school or just life in general this week, I pray, Lord, that you give us gospel moments, that we're able to show and to share our faith with others in even ways we never expected or thought of. I pray we remember how much you love, you humbly came into the creation that you created. You... The the creator of time stepped into time, and you humbled yourself, and you hung and you died on the cross willingly, for us, taking the wrath of God. I pray if there's anybody here this morning who does not believe these words, who have not repented, who do not have the Holy Spirit, I pray Lord that you start working and softening their hearts. I pray that they have boldness and the courage to ask questions if they're confused, ask questions if 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 they're, if they're seeking you, Lord. God, we're just thankful for the love that you've shown us. Jesus, we praise you this morning. We thank you for your amazing love and your amazing grace. And in your holy name we pray. Amen.